Good morning again, everyone. It's nice, the coffee and the tea, yes? That's one thing the Facebook people don't have. So those of you who are watching on Facebook Live, you know you're missing the coffee and the tea, and you're missing great conversation. Uh, but it's good to have you with us, and maybe you'll be watching this a little bit later uh, through our feed, but you, as I say every week, you're, you're with us in spirit, but not in body. So hopefully one day we get you here in body as well, so, but we're enjoying coffee and tea while you're watching. So anyway, welcome again this morning. And uh, again, wanted to greet those of you who are new with us. It's nice to see fresh faces and visitors. We are in the middle of a series, or really toward the back end of a series called Didn't See It Coming. And this is based on a book by a pastor, Canadian pastor, who I really enjoy listening to his podcast uh, on, uh, on the internet. And uh, unusual for a Canadian pastor to have such a huge following. He's got six and a half million listens on his podcast. His name is Carrie Newhoff, and he's a former lawyer uh, turned pastor about 20-some-odd years ago and um, planted a church in Barrie, Ontario. I think it's in Barrie, and really um, has a heart to reach non-churched people, and his church has grown over the years to some 1,500 people, and he's a good writer and very well respected in the whole leadership realm, not only in the church circle, but even in the non-Christian world. And uh, when I saw this book um, and saw the content of it, I just thought it would be a wonderful material to present to you uh, with a little bit of my own stuff mixed in, all right? So um, he talks about um, seven challenges, I think there's more than seven, that, that no one expects, but really that everyone faces in life at one point or another. So we talked about cynicism and compromise, and disconnection, and irrelevance, and today we're going to do pride, which might be the most difficult one of them all, and then uh, we'll do burnout and emptiness. Really positive subjects, yes? Really, I mean, really uplifting, positive things, but uh, these are things that we all deal with in our own personal lives, and usually what happens is we don't run into them and we don't identify them as such until they do their damage in our lives. And until we see, oh boy, you know, now I'm facing a catastrophe that has happened in my life. My marriage is falling apart. My relationships are all broken. I'm losing my, my job, my credibility, all of these things. People are, don't want to be around me. I'm alone. I'm isolated. All these kinds of things can be the result of these challenges that come into our life that we, wow, we didn't see that coming. So it's a good idea to try and face them head on uh, before they do their damage. So I'm going to talk about uh, pride today in that, uh, in that regard. Question for you, who is the most proud, just think for a moment, the most proud, the most arrogant, the most selfish, the most narcissistic person that you can think of? And don't say it out loud. <laughs> but you probably can easily think of somebody who is that. Could be somebody who you work with. Could be your boss. Could be one of your employees, if you have employees. It could be maybe someone in your family, extended family. I don't know. You know, we, we were joking this morning about that and 
You know the old saying, you call your in-laws the outlaws sometimes? You're going to go visit the outlaws? Well, sometimes, you know, maybe we think of them that way. The most proud, arrogant, self-centered, narcissistic person. Easy to think of, right? Because we have an easier time spotting this in other people. But to spot it in our own selves is a little harder to do. Maybe you thought about a political leader. I can think of a political leader who would be very popular choice. Uh, and I see some head nods, right? And I won't, I won't name the individual, but you know this is a, a popular candidate for, for pride, I suppose. But we don't really identify this in ourselves too often. Uh, And so we need to define what it is first and foremost. Uh, Pride, at its root, is an obsession with you, an obsession with yourself, where you're always thinking about yourself to a point where, you know, everything is engineered around you. Did you ever hear the saying growing up, or maybe you said it to your own children, the world doesn't revolve around Did you ever say that to them? I I heard that many times, right? The world doesn't revolve around you. Well, when you're proud in the negative sense, because there's a good good sense of pride, right? Those of you who have children, you know what it's like to be proud of your children, or maybe you know what it's like to be proud of an accomplishment, something you did. But this we're talking about a negative pride. It's an obsession with self. So that person... Who, who's, you know, the most self-centered person. I won't, I won't pin the blame on you. The person that you thought of. Uh, how do you think that person got that way? Now, maybe they're just by nature, uh, just a nasty, uh, we use the term narcissism, which is like a really intense kind of pride. Right? When a person's narcissistic, they're almost like they have no empathy for anybody else, and everybody else is kind of a pawn on their playing field for their own benefit. You know, that's real full-blown narcissism. But I don't think there are any of you in this room, I would, I would guess, that are full-blown like narcissists. You probably wouldn't be here today if you were. Or maybe you're here and you've come to crash the party, I don't know, but I don't think there are any narcissists in this room. But how does pride leak its way into our lives where it becomes a kind of destructive thing? How do you think they got that way? And here's the big, the big uh, secret. A lot of it starts with insecurity. A lot of it starts with a sense of a person being, they think, the opposite of proud, because they don't have a sense of their own identity, they don't have a sense of measuring up, and that insecurity begins to turn into actual pride. Say, well, how does that work? How does that start? Let me give you a few ways. Uh, Number one, and this is like one of the biggest diseases out there, and I've seen it in the church world, uh, especially when people compare themselves to other people. So, you know, you, you and it, imagine you, you're in a church setting. I know we're meeting in a, in a hotel, a little bit unconventional, but what do you do? You see other people, and if you're, if you're insecure, you may compare yourself to the other person. 
and you may think, well, you know, I might be better than so-and-so, or so-and-so might be a little less than me. But there's a comparison that starts to happen. Well, this person, you know, they were up there singing or beating the cajon or playing that keyboard, and wow, you know, I don't measure up to them or that singer or that whatever. And maybe out in your own, your own personal space, you know, out in your job, you, what do you do? You compare yourself to somebody else. Am I better? Am I worse? Because there isn't a sense of security. There's a, a comparison that starts happening. And we're taught to do this, right? Look at the advertising industry. If you buy telltale shows, if you buy this thing, you will have this lifestyle which will be better than somebody else's lifestyle. So the grass will be greener on the other side if you buy this item or experience this whatever it is. This is advertising. And the advertising industry knows that. They know that we all compare ourselves to one another. And so what do they do? What do, they, do? they feed into that. But that is the common denominator there is you. It's yourself. So you compare yourself to somebody else. And another way that it continues, your identity is determined by your performance. So who you are and, and you know, who you are as a person is determined by what you do. So if you succeed in maybe your job or your, your, your interests or your vocation or whatever it is, and if you're successful, then you're somebody. But if you fail then you're less than somebody else. Uh, there's a great um, quote from Pastor Tim Keller. He pastors in, uh, in Manhattan, in New York City. And he says this, when work is your identity, success goes to your head, puffs you up, and failure goes to your heart. Great, great quote from, from Tim Keller. Um, and when that happens... That's a sign of insecurity. Can I just tell you, if your identity is based in your performance, you are headed for a major, major crisis because there are things that you cannot control in life about performance. There are mistakes that you are inevitably, inevitably going to make in performance. They don't have anything to do with moral failure or something ethical per se. It's just you're not going to be perfect all the time in everything you do. And you can't control all the details of the sphere in which you perform. So if your company closes and you lose your job, sometimes you may have no control over that. Well, does that change who you are? Does that change who you are as a person? Well, if you're insecure and your identity is determined by what you do, wow, you're on really shaky ground. This is why I like watching sports. And you know that I like to watch baseball do you know why? Because people fail 65% of the time in that game. And you get to see how they fail, if they fail well or they fail poorly. And I enjoy seeing these grown men behave like little children. So last night, there were, there were things that happened in the baseball game, and you have a grown man picking up his baseball glove and throwing it on the ground in protest, pouting like a child. Why? Because who that guy is, is his performance. And you say, excuse me, 
you're 28 years old and you are pouting like a child. And then there are other athletes and they fail and you don't see any pout like a child and they may be able to come back very, very quickly from that failure. And because who they are may not be based on whether or not they did well in you know, the particular performance they were doing. Uh, you can't celebrate somebody else's success so when you're, when you're working with other people, when maybe you're in some kind of context where you you're work with others, and others are doing better than you at what you do, and that bothers you, and that angers you, and you're jealous of that. Well, again, that's because there's a little bit of insecurity there, and the common denominator is once again you, yourself, yourself, yourself. Uh, our daughter is on a competitive dance team, and one of the things that they teach these kids uh, is when they're, when they're competing and you go to a dance competition, it'll be like two days and, you know, 800 performances and sometimes 500 kids. And they all throw them on the, on the big stage at the end and they hand out awards to these kids, sometimes individuals, sometimes teams. Uh, but at our daughter's studio, they teach the kids, they drill the kids. When somebody else wins, you applaud for them. You applaud for them when they do better than you, you still applaud for them. And what happens is when you learn that, when you learn that discipline, then you start to actually believe it, right? At the beginning, you're kind of, well, yeah, well, I'm, yeah, I'm doing this because I have to. And then you do it a few more times, and after a while, you start to realize, well, you know what? They really did perform well. They really do deserve uh, to be praised, they did perform well. Just factually speaking, they performed well. If a, if a, if a person is secure in themselves, then they can acknowledge somebody else's success, but if they're insecure, they can't. You squeeze gifted people out of your life, so people who know better than you, people who have been down the track a little farther than you have in your particular thing, whatever it is, rather than learning from those people, Rather than being around those people, you push those people away because those people are a threat to you. Because, again, you compare yourself with other people. There's insecurity. You squeeze gifted people out of your life. Uh, and lastly, you want a say in everything. You have to have your two cents in everything that goes on. You have to have the input. You may have to have the last word. I always watch to see if, if there's people who I'm running into, and they always have to have the last word in every single conversation. They always have to have input. They always have to have the last word. Can I just tell you, by nature, I am like that. So if, you, if I'm in a conversation with you and you find that I'm, that I'm interrupting you and I'm cutting you off, you know what that is? That's very self-centered, okay? So I give you the right to tell me to be quiet, okay? Just say, pastor, put a sock in it, okay? I don't, I don't mind that, all right? Uh, because I, I, like you, I struggle with, with all of these things as well. But when somebody always has to have their nose in the conversation, they always have to have, so they're always the smartest person in the room. That's a sign that there's some insecurity there that, you know, it could, could lead to, to problems. And then what happens when pride starts to become full-blown, the heart of the person begins to harden. So the person now is superior to everybody else. 
So when they look at somebody else and say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. You know, uh, they, they, uh, the way that I look, you know, may be one way, but I'm a whole lot better than this person because I am s now I'm superior to everybody else. Uh, and when, when you're superior and you have that sense of superiority to other people, wow, your, your heart has become hard. You're very judgmental of others. That's a sign of a hardened heart. You see it in the church often. Can I just tell you, non-Christian people and non-churched people, you know what their number one complaint is about churched people? Judgmental, judgmental, judgmental. That's what they will say. You're judgmental, you're arrogant, you're self-centered, you're better than everybody else. And sometimes, can I just tell you, sometimes they're right. Sometimes Christian folks, people who, who go to church all their lives, sometimes we can be incredibly judgmental. When the heart is hard, there's an unaccountability where the person no longer has anybody who they are accountable to in their maybe personal life or professional life or whatever. They're an island unto themselves. All of these things are signs of pride. Let me give you a couple of really interesting examples from the Bible. A story that Jesus told, he only tells it in the Gospel of Luke, which is in the Bible's New Testament. He tells this little story to illustrate this. And I call it the story of the ultra-religious and the double-crossing tax man. So Jesus tells a little story. It almost sounds like a joke. You know, some people tell jokes and say, well, two, two people, you know, you have a rabbi and you have an imam and you have a priest. And two people did this, three people did this. He's kind of telling a story in this way. And it's in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And it says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. The definition of pride. Jesus told this parable, this little story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. So a Pharisee was the ultra-religious Jewish elite of the day. Uh, have you ever have you ever seen any Orthodox Jewish people today? The Hasidic Jews they would be they would be kind of the modern equivalent to Pharisees. Super pious, super religious, did everything right, went through all the motions, or so they thought. And so you have this Pharisee who goes up to the temple to pray, and a tax collector. So in that day, tax collectors were not liked. Uh, how many of you like it when you get notified by the CRA today? Get a phone call from the CRA. By the way, it, the CRA never calls. So just a disclaimer for you, if you're getting a call from the CRA saying that you owe them money and pay it in Bitcoin, it's a scam. Okay, just telling you, the CRA writes letters they do not call. Okay, so just a tip for you. Uh, but nobody likes tax collectors today, and nobody liked them back then either, because in the Jewish culture, which was dominated by Rome, they had these insiders who would work for them and collect taxes, and some of them would be Jewish people. And so a Jewish taxman who worked for Rome was viewed as kind of like a double-crosser, so it was like really frowned upon. So you got this Pharisee and this tax collector, and they go up to the temple to pray, Jesus says, and the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Listen to his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, 
robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even like this tax collector over here. I am so thankful that I am not like any of these people, especially this kind of guy over here. Why? I fast twice a week, he's telling God, and I give a tenth of all I get. I mean, you talk about proud. This guy is as proud as proud can be. Uh, but verse 13, but the tax collector, Jesus continues his little story, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he says. So Jesus ends his little story, and he says, I tell you that this man, this tax collector, rather than the other guy, went home justified before God. So God looks at the guy and says, you are justified before me, not this other Mr. Perfect, for all who exalt themselves, Jesus says, will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Great lesson on pride there. Great example of pride. Another example, which I suppose may be fitting uh, given, you know, the Halloween's in a few days. Uh, the whole story of the origin of the being that the Bible names as the devil and Satan and all these titles that we see throughout the Bible the whole origin and the whole the prevailing theory about the origin of this, this being, if you will, is pride. So you see a couple of passages in the Old Testament. These are from the major prophets, and they're talking about kings of that day. Again, you're talking, you know, 25, 26, 2700 years ago, but they're speaking to these kings in a, in a judgmental fashion. Isaiah chapter 14, referring to the king of Babylon at that time. And listen to what he says. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the, most, uh, on the mount of the assembly. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I will take the place, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, he's saying, of God himself. Uh, and in Ezekiel's uh, picture, he's referring to the king of Tyre here. Again, another natural king, if you will. But look at the terms he uses. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Again, this is why scholars say, hmm, he might not be talking about a natural king here. Every precious stone adorned you, and there's all these beautiful stones that are named. Your settings and mountains were made of, of gold the day you were created. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, which is like an angel. You were on the holy mountain of God. You were blameless in all your ways until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned, so I drove you in disgrace from the mountain of God. And I expelled you, guardian uh, cherub, again, which is like an angel. I kicked you out. In verse 17, your heart became proud. 
on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth and made you a spectacle before kings. These are the two passages which most scholars observe as being descriptions of the origin of this being who seeks to, to deceive and lie to people and, and tempt people and lead people down a road to, uh, uh, to destruction. Uh, people sometimes ask me, do you really believe the story of a talking snake in a garden, you know, with these two naked people running around? How can you believe something so, so silly? Let me just tell you why. That lie that is told to that first couple uh, is so brilliant and, and so um, uh, deceptive that it, it has to be a record of something that really took place. Because what is the tempter saying to that couple? He's saying to them, listen, God is lying to you. Your perception of God is not what you think. The way that he is presenting himself to you is not true. He's holding out information from you. He tells you that if you do this thing and eat this fruit, you're going to die. You're not going to die. It's a lie what he's telling you. You've got his character mistaken. He's not what you think he is. Let me tell you that if you eat the thing and you eat the fruit, what's really going to happen is you're going to become like him. And he does not want to share that with you. And you're the one being duped, you know, to this first couple because God has misrepresented himself to you. The same deception happens today over and over again in our heads. Well, you know, God is supposed to be this way, but I don't really think that he is. I think he, it's not really true. He's misrepresented himself. Uh, in any case, the story is one of a being that became proud, and that pride led to his banishment, his ultimate destruction. In our own personal lives, the final conclusion, the result of pride, is isolation. So when you're proud to a point where your heart is hard, and you have all those symptoms that we looked at before, you're going to be isolated. People are not going to want to be around you, and you're going to wonder why. Uh, you know, your wife and kids don't want to talk to you. Your friends don't want to spend any time with you. Nobody really wants to be around you, but you love being around yourself. <laughs> this is isolation. This is the, the, the final conclusion. This is the result of pride, and nobody wants to be that way. So let me give you uh, the antidote to pride as we start wrapping up today. It's real simple. It's humility. Humility. Um, I'm going to show you a little video, and uh, there's three examples on the screen of how you can, you can get humility in your life. One is to learn it early, and rarely do we do that. I mean, maybe, maybe you're teaching your kids to be humble. I'm not sure. But if we learn it at a young age, it tends to take. It just doesn't happen too often. The other thing that happens is humiliation which is not the same as humility. In humiliation, something happens to you in your life where you're really, really embarrassed. And, you know, you've been, you've been knocked off your tower and you've been humiliated and you realize, wow, I've been a very proud person because now I feel quite ashamed in this thing that's come into my life. Or you may actually invite it and cultivate it. Uh, let me show you a little video, and you decide which of the three the video shows. Learn an early life, humiliation, or uh, invite and cultivate. 
We'll see if this works. So has he learned in early life? Well, has he been humiliated? Yeah, he's really been humiliated. That video has been viewed, I think, millions of times now because the guy made a complete fool of himself, you know? And he should know that the freeze never loses, although he, he has lost two or three times, I'm told. Uh, but, you know, when you give someone a 200-foot head start, maybe you'll lose once in a while. So ideally, you want to invite humility and cultivate humility uh, in your life. So let me give you three little tips to help you do this with some Bible verses to back it up. Number one, never lose your gratitude. The day that you stop being thankful for what you have and the day that you start realizing that it's all because of you, and everything that you have in life is all because of you. The day that you stop being thankful, the day that you stop having gratitude is the day that you are starting to battle pride, okay? Uh, Deuteronomy, way back in the Old Testament, in uh, chapter 8, verses 10 to 18, you have this, this wonderful piece of advice from Moses to the people before they enter into the promised land and take possession of the promised land and all that. Again, you have to go back, keeping this in context, and he says, look, when you have eaten and are satisfied, he said, make sure you praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given to you. Be careful that you do not forget, he says, the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees. Otherwise... When you eat and when you're satisfied and when you build your houses and when you settle down and when you've got big livestock and when you've got silver and gold and all of these things, your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through all of that stuff that you experienced, but if you forget you're going to say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors. So what's he saying? What's the lesson for us today? You need to remember to be thankful. Because what you have and all the things that you experience in life, especially those good things that you love so much, you need to realize there's a bigger picture. And when you start to become, well, it's me who did all this. Wow, that's, you're going to be dealing with pride there. So keep gratitude, and that'll keep you humble. Uh, take the low place, and that'll keep you humble. Um, so you, even though you can have, you know, all kinds of things because of all of your achievements in life, 
Look for a way to serve. Look for the low place. So Philippians chapter 2, Paul's uh, uh, writing to this church in Philippi, again, 2,000 years ago, and he's using the example of Jesus as the ultimate example of humility. And he says to the people, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any sharing of the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, make my joy complete by doing what? By being like-minded, having the same love, the one, being in one spirit, one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And he uses the example of Jesus who being in very nature God made himself nothing, made himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humbled himself as it were. And he's saying, you need to practice this, the same kind of thing and be humble in the way that you treat people and look for an opportunity to serve. It is amazing. You see examples of this sometimes out in the, in the business world, and you see people who are CEOs of corporations and all that, and they, they, they go and they kind of you know, take off their suit, and they go and they serve in a soup kitchen, and they go and they serve the poor. Do you know that's a, that's a person who's really got it? That's a person who really understands humility because they're sharing all that they have. They're sharing themselves, even though they don't have to, even though they earn the big, the big office and the big salary and all of this stuff. They learn to serve, and that will keep you humble. And number three, finally, be honest, be honest, be honest with yourself, and be honest with God. Honesty is a, a wonderful tool to keep you humble, but it isn't easy. But you've got to be blunt honest with yourself. So James chapter 3, this is the half-brother of Jesus. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good deeds, by, uh, by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy, and selfish ambition in your hearts. This is the fruit of pride. Do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, he says, does not come from heaven, but it is earthly, it is unspiritual, and he even says it is demonic. This idea that you think you're wise when you're selfish and you have bitter envy in your heart and you have ambition, selfish ambition in your heart. He says, this is, this is not wisdom at all. This is really, really bad. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and there you find every evil practice. Wow. And sometimes we got to be blunt, honest with ourselves and honest with God. And say, wow, am I, am, I, am I just being selfish here? Am I being uh, uh, superior to other people? Uh, do I really care about this individual who I work with every day? Or I, do I just want to climb over them so that I can make it to the top? And sometimes we have to take a really good look in the mirror and confront ourselves and say, wow, that really needs to be dealt with. That really needs to, to change. And can I just tell you, even, again, in the church world, for pastors and people who lead churches, wow, this can be a really tough thing. Because what do we do? We compare ourselves with others all the time. 
well, this person's a better speaker. This person has a bigger church. This person, you know, has all these things and all this following and all these people. Wow, when we start to get that way, even those of us who volunteer in church circles, and again, we do that deadly game of comparison, oh, that'll, that'll lead you down a path of destruction. That'll lead you down a path of pride. Practice gratitude. Take the low place. Get honest with yourself and God, and you can defeat the monster of pride.